Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who might be new to our church, my name is Brian, and I have the privilege of working with our high school student ministry here at River Oaks. And so glad that you have chosen to be with us on this rainy Sunday morning as we are kicking off a, a new season in the life of our church called Advent. And Advent is a Latin term uh, that is re it refers to the word coming, which um, in the Christian Protestant church um, is the four Sundays that immediately uh, walk us up into Christmas Day. So over the next few weeks of Advent encounters, we are going to look at various people found in the New Testament and uh, the Gospels, uh, people like Zechariah, Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, and the Magi. And we're going to learn from each one of these people or, or groups of people about some of the supernatural encounters that they had uh, from God. And as we get started this morning, um, I want to ask this question. Has anybody ever asked God to show you that he is present in your life? Like you, you've prayed fervently for God just to give you a sign to show you that he's there, that he's present, and that he's working only to remain in silence and feel like you aren't hearing from him. So you continue to pray, Lord, please just give me a sign. And then sometimes we get one, something like this. Certainly, we hope that person's okay. Uh, and I realize that many of us, we, we pray uh, and ask God to give us a sign, not meaning a physical sign upside the head. But today, we are going to be looking at a sign that, that God gave some fervent people of the Lord uh, and, and fervent in their prayers, uh, they, who are righteous before the Lord, uh, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And as we begin, uh, it's important to note that during this period of time, God had been silent for 400 years leading up to this, where we learn that God was listening to the prayers of an elderly priest named Zechariah and his barren wife, and he broke his silence through a divine messenger to bring this couple hope and joy. And we're going to be again in Luke 1 where we're going to observe four major movements. The first is a disappointed couple. And then they're going to have an unplanned interruption, followed by an angelic prophecy. And finally, we will end with an answered prayer. And we're going to just pray one more time as we begin this morning. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to have the best understanding of um, your text this morning. And we thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is um, profitable for so much. And this morning, we ask that it would allow us to teach, to teach us um, how we can follow you better, to know you, and, and to be the best disciples that we can be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1. Verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of, of Abijah. And he had a wife from a daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Luke is the only one of our gospel writers that, that gives us the names of John the Baptist's parents. And before John the Baptist is on the scene, we learn that this married couple who has a unique and serious life circumstance, 
Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who were both from a priestly lineage, this would have been a, a fact of really great significance and weight with the Jews. They were living during a very unpeaceful time in Israel's history. Israel was watching, watching a foreign power occupy their land and they were awaiting deliverance. And in verse 6, it says that they were both righteous before God. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were both righteous, but they were not without sin. The desire of their hearts was to belong to God and to serve him wholeheartedly, but rather quickly, we learned that these two servants of God, who had been faithfully serving him, were childless. The fact that they were unable to conceive would have been such a disappointment for them. And in fact, we learned that it was Elizabeth who was barren, and she must have felt broken and to blame. And as great of a disappointment as this is for so many people today, it was even more so in biblical days because of the expectation that women had to provide heirs and to build a family that could help with family responsibilities. So I can only imagine the situation. Shortly after Zechariah and Elizabeth got back from their honeymoon, well-meaning people probably began to approach them saying, so, you know, when is baby Zechariah Jr. coming along? And as time went by, she began to age, and those people began to say with concern in their voices, Elizabeth, we're praying for you. And now, in their old age, they whisper around her, she can't have children. And you could probably see the concern on their faces. Imagine how difficult it must have been for her to rejoice in the pregnancy of other women without feeling sorrow for her own inability to conceive. In verse 25, we learn that she was well aware of what she called a disgrace among the people. She felt stigma and she felt shame. Elizabeth and Zechariah were now well along in their years and at some point they had to grapple with the idea and adjust to their new reality that there might not have kids was now they in fact a would not have children. We are now met with this question that applies to all of us today. How do we deal with disappointment and serve God through that? We have all been disappointed at some point in our lives. Maybe we didn't get into the college of our choice. Maybe we didn't get a promotion that we were um, set up for. Maybe a financial investment turned out to be a wrong decision. We suffer a breakup that we didn't see coming. Honestly, the list could go on and on and on of disappointments that we face in life. But it leaves us with this question, and I believe that disappointments that we experience will either make us bitter or they can make us better. And I've found that the Christians that I know with the strongest faith, they trust in the sovereignty of God. Divine sovereignty is this concept, it's this idea that refers to God's all-encompassing rule over the entire universe. God has the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. In his timing, he can either say yes or no or not yet. And Elizabeth and Zechariah knew this. They trusted in God's plan and they, they handled a lifelong disappointment and social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. They served God even though they did not have what they wanted. And next, Zechariah experienced more than he could have ever dreamed of. Now, continuing in verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord 
and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Twice a year, the priest had to serve on a rotation at Herod's temple in Jerusalem. There were 24 divisions of priests that altogether combined for a total of 18,000 priests. And we learned that Zechariah was chosen to enter into this temple. And if we go to this next picture, you can see the zoomed in area where there was the sanctuary that held a lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence and an altar of incense. He was chosen by a system of casting lots. Ancient peoples used small stones labeled with possible outcomes to make decisions that they believed reflected divine will. So what they did was they would cast these lots, they would throw these stones, and, and Zechariah was the honored recipient chosen by God to enter into the temple. And because of there being 18,000 priests, this special honor was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity if it even happened at all. So in his old age, Zechariah was now to burn the incense during the sacrifice. It was during the special time of worship that we have our first Advent encounter in the midst of a very unplanned interruption. Verse 11 continues. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. An angel appears to Zechariah to bring a great message to God of hope and joy to a childless, faithful servant. Surely Zechariah had to do, do a double take. He, he, he perhaps took off his glasses and wondered if he needed to call the optometrist to, to understand if what his eyes were seeing was indeed true. Did he knew, need a new prescription? Surely his eyes were deceiving him. Was this really an angel? We often have images of angels in our minds, and we tend to think of them like they're depicted in cartoons on TV with white glowing with a harp and a cute little halo on the top, and you know, the music opens up and uh, the angels all cheer. Whatever, however, the people who encountered angels in the Bible are almost always terrified. They cover their eyes, they hide their faces, and they fear for their lives. And this is certainly what happened with Zechariah's encounter. If we continue reading in verse 12, we learn. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Fear fell upon Zechariah. He was without a doubt rattled by what he saw. The word angel in Greek is this word um, angelos, which means messenger, and it's through this angelic messenger that God speaks and gives this childless servant great hope and joy to come. The first message that is found is found in verse 13, and it's something that the angel tells Zechariah that I can also believe that we can learn today. God breaks his silence of 400 years by giving the first words through this angel, and he says, do not be afraid. Verse 13 says, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Zechariah's reaction was fear, and you might think that a man from this priestly tribe and righteous before God would have been delighted at seeing an angel. But instead, we see that when God intervened in his life personally, Zechariah was afraid, and he was troubled. And we will likely see similar responses in the coming weeks of Advent encounters. But this was the first time in that 400-year history uh, where, since the end of Malachi, that God had spoken. And so it might seem like God is silent at times in our lives, but we should remember that God can speak to us in the most unassuming of ways. In this part of history, God broke his silence, and he did so by relaying that we are not to fear. 
Next, the angel gives Zechariah an angelic prophecy. The scripture continues in verse 13, after Zechariah was told not to be afraid. said, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Perhaps like you're like me, and you, there have been times where you, you've prayed, and you've lifted these prayers before the Lord that have yet to be answered. You've prayed for someone to be healed of their ailment or their cancer. You've prayed for someone's salvation. You've prayed for a resolution to a difficult situation at your work. Or you've prayed for a restoration in an estranged relationship. Only to have and to experience no miraculous healing. That that person has still not yet surrendered their life to God. Or the work situation is still ongoing and causing a lot of stress. Or the estrangement is still there. You can rest assured that the second thing that we can learn is that God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. The angel said to Zechariah, your prayer is heard. Zechariah did not believe it though. He doubted God's promise and he had been praying without conviction. He did not really believe that God would answer his fervent prayers. Even a righteous man can pray with no sense of expectation. But scripture continues in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. If we were to stop right here, verse 13 and 14, the angel's words to Zechariah were words that we would all, that, that many of us all would hope for. We all, um, as humans, want to not be able to fear things. We don't want to have to be afraid. We want to have a family, and we want to be happy. The angel promised Zechariah that he personally would have joy and gladness and that many would rejoice at the birth of his son, but not all, because eventually this baby grew to be an adult and was beheaded for speaking out against the sins of the king. Nevertheless, according to the angel, many were to rejoice at John's birth. And then the angel continues in verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. We know that God will do great things in and through this child when an angel of the Lord says so. About eight years ago, uh, my wife Casey was was entering into our church one day uh, with our son Jet, who was an infant at the time. And this this lady, I, I wish that we knew who it was, but she had never met her before. But this lady approached Casey and looked down at our infant son Jet and she prophesied over him. She, now, let me just pause right here. If you know Jet, you know that he can be strong-willed and stubborn. Uh, this is today, like not infant Jet, but st- stubborn, strong-willed, difficult, uh, a handful, stubborn. Did I say strong-willed? Um, and it's, he's really cute, though, and that's the only reason we haven't wrung his neck um, to this day. But this, this lady, as an infant, spoke, uh, this lady spoke as, uh, over Jet as an infant, there we go, um, words of prophecy over him. And she told Casey, and I will never forget this, this child will one day go on to do great things for the Lord. And a week and a half ago, Jet gave his life to Christ. And I believe that that lady's words are already coming true because he's drawn, yeah, amen, thank you. And parents, as a youth pastor, I get to see this stuff all the time. You know, 
you might, you might be ready to ship your kids off to boot camp when they like, come home late after curfew or when they don't pick up their clothes off the floor for the 400th time that you've asked them to do it or things like this. But I've seen how God is doing amazing things in and through our young people. So just hold fast and know that God is going to do and will continue to do great things through your children, the way that Zechariah was told would happen to their son, John. And the angel continues in verse 15. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The angel told Zechariah that John was to have an ascetic lifestyle. Since most in that culture, including the righteous, did, did drink some type of wine, this, was command, this, this command indicated that John was going to have a special level of attention and, and devotion to God. That he would be set apart. And the angel says that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth onward. This is a whole new concept of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout the whole entire Old Testament, God had anointed special people, prophets, and kings with his spirit. And the spirit was given for specific tasks in particular times. Gideon, for instance, was filled with the spirit to lead the Israelites into battle. Moses was filled with the Spirit to carry out the exodus from Egypt. John is the very first person that we see who from his birth was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you were to fast forward to the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, quoting from the prophet Joel, said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And from that moment on, in the book of Acts, God made it possible for all believers to live in the Spirit. So for those of us who have given our lives to, the God, to God since the day of Pentecost, it doesn't just mean that we are more religious. Instead, it means that we are physically indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit has resided, that, that God's Holy Spirit resides with us, and we can live with God's power in us. And I believe that that is amazing. And that John was the forerunner for all of this. And the angel continues in verse 16. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord their God. The angel tells Zechariah that John is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And this wording indicates that there were many Israelites who did not know God. By birth, they belonged to God's chosen race. But through John, they would find the center of their faith. And this is still an important dimension, dimension of evangelism today. Many birthright Christians brought by believing parents in for baptism into this covenant do not find God until much later, if even at all. So it's really important for us to continue the work of evangelism, to continue to teach our children scriptures and to point them to God. John's call was to help all of those who were by birthright God's special people to know him. And that is still a valid evangelistic thrust for us today. Verse 17, it continues. And he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel says that others will know that John is of God because he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. In other words, there is going to be family reconciliation. I believe that we are called to bring reconciliation to our families. If you want to know whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit, I believe that you have to look no further than examining the emotional climate of your family. 
Authentic love between family members is one sign of God's presence. There are certainly times where we might be at odds with other family members, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a child, but we are called to reconcile that because the real you is the person that you're home, uh, that you are at home with your family. And we're all guilty of this, right? Like we can tend to put on masks, especially here at church. Um, we, we, we tend to pretend like everything's good on the outside when really things are not the best. Um, I can remember getting into a fight uh, with, uh, yes, pastors get into fight with their spouses. Um, I can remember getting into a fight or an argument with my wife, Casey, one day um, on the way to church years ago. And uh, we, we were arguing about something. I forget what it was. She was probably right and I was probably wrong. Um, no, she was right and I was wrong. Um, <laughs> And uh, whatever it was, like I had to get out of the car because it was time for me to be in the building and, and um, it, like that's part of my job. And so um, I hop out of the car, the, the, the fight is still not yet resolved. And so Casey's sitting in the car still stewing. And later she says to me, I don't know how you do this. How do you just get out of the car and go out and pretend like everything's good when really they're not? And what, was she, what she was saying to me was that the real test comes in how you treat people you live with every day. And that's somewhat frightening. But when God's spirit is at work, parents are reconciled to children according to the angel's promise. If you want me to show you a family where there's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, I will show you a family where reality, love, openness, and acceptance within the family structure is very evident. They would be displaying the fruits of the spirit in the way that they relate to each other. They would display things like love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to one another. And the angel promises that through John's ministry, there will be revival and renewal in the home. Above all the other things that we do, whether it's work or things as hobbies, we are called like John to bring love and to bring reconciliation to our family. And Zechariah said to the angel in verse 18, we continue, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is in advance in years. So here for the first time, after the angel is done speaking, Zechariah speaks up, and he says, how am I to know this? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Here we see the name of the angel for the very first time. His name is Gabriel. And it is very likely that Zechariah, being a devout Jew and righteous before God, would have been very familiar with the Old Testament um, and, and to know that Gabriel was a name that had shown up in the book of Daniel. Gabriel was, had already shown up and interpreted Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 8 and gave Daniel the prophecy of 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. So this angelic being had helped Daniel, and now had shown up yet again to break this silence of 400 years and to help um, Zechariah bring him great news and ultimately prepare the way for Christ. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in this interaction between Gabriel and Zechariah, right? Like the angel tells Zechariah that he and his wife are going to have a son, even though they're older than, than physically possible. Zechariah then argues. He's like, hey, you know, Gabriel, I don't know if you know how this works or not, but like, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm too old for all that. And then the angel pulls rank and he says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. In other words, God sent me. How dare you argue with me? 
Zechariah could not believe this good news, chiefly because of his age. And I love the story of an old man in his 90s who went to the doctor with knee trouble. And the doctor said to him, well, at your age, what did you expect? And the patient said, I expect you to fix this knee. And he said, my other knee is the same age and it works just fine. So often others or maybe even ourselves, we can think that we can't do things because of our age. Our age can be a barrier. Whatever age we are, we can believe that we are restricted because of it. Perhaps we might think that we're too old to be used by God or too young to fulfill his promises and his commands. But Zechariah's age was not a factor in his ability to carry out God's purposes. Zechariah's soon-to-be child, John, would one day go on to be a predecessor to Jesus, proclaiming that greater days are to come. Zechariah could, have no, could not have known that. His reaction to all that the angel had predicted was simply disbelief. It was all too good to be true. He was a lot like Thomas, who after uh, the disciple, who doubted the resurrection and said, "'Unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails,' and place my finger into the marks and nails, and to place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Well, Thomas was given proof, and then he believed that it really was Jesus. Zechariah was in disbelief, and he questioned God's ability to provide them a child in their old, own old age. And so here's what happens next in verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah was silenced for his unbelief. And in the fin so it, it makes me wonder, like if an angel showed up to you and said, your prayer is heard, what would that mean for you? What is the too good to be true news in your life? You may have given up believing that God can bring it about. You might think that you're too old or, or too young to start something new and exciting. Remember that people, even in their 90s, have gone on to written plays and to govern nations. Perhaps you have been praying about your loneliness, and you, you're single, and you're well past the age of expected to marry. I've known plenty of people who have found love and gone on to marry or to remarry in their old age. Whatever it is that might seem too good to be true for you, remember Zechariah. And remember God's sovereignty is so much greater than our plans. Sometimes we tire of waiting for God's answers. We, we pray and we pray and we wait and we wait and we take things in our own hands. There was another person in the Old Testament who did this. God told Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. That he and Sarah, uh, his wife Sarah, they were also old, just much like Zechariah and Elizabeth. But Sarah was barren. And Abraham waited for what seemed to be a reasonable length of time. And he finally decided to help matters along. And he had a son by Hagar, Sarah's maid. And from that union came their son Ishmael. And in his impatience, Abraham decided to help God out. And in the vernacular, he messed up. He took things into his own hands rather than relying on God's sovereignty. In the same way, Zechariah could not believe that God had an answer for him. And we've all been guilty of doing the same. It may be that we enter into an affair because we, we, we keep trusting uh, that, that God is going to do something in our marriage, but it continues to remain broken. We may in desperation take the wrong job, not trusting that the right one will turn up. We might not believe that God can untangle the mess that we have found ourselves in. 
when we step out of alignment with God's ways, we always pay the price for our unbelief, just as Zechariah did. He became mute throughout Elizabeth's entire pregnancy. What happens next, though, is that the priest who burned the incense would often go out of the temple after offering the incense, and they would um, proclaim a blessing to the people who are outside praying. And so we see in verse 21 what happens. The people who were waiting outside for Zechariah, they, they were wondering at this delay inside the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. It was apparent when Zechariah came out of the temple that something awesome had happened. An authentic experience with God is always obvious. And as a youth pastor, I see this all the time. I love seeing when young people have what we call the aha moments, where finally, you know, we, we teach them for years and years and years about Jesus. And then finally they're like, oh, you know, and, and they, they finally get it and something clicks. I've seen on youth trips where walls are torn down and community is built. I've seen Students surrender in reckless abandon and worship, and they give their lives and the things that they hold on to over to Christ. Zechariah could not pass along this customary blessing because he was mute, even though he had this rich encounter with God. Something unusual had happened to him, and this crowd outside, they perceived it. His silence was ended, so he, uh, sorry, his service had, had ended, so he returned home to Elizabeth, and then we arrive at the final movement, the answered prayer. The years of prayers for a child lifted by Zechariah and Elizabeth were finally answered, just as the angel uh, Gabriel had predicted in the first Advent encounter. In verse 24, we see this. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days, when he looked on me to take away my reproach, among people. I think that the thing God wants for us is not too unlike what he wanted for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, and that is that he wants to take away our reproach among men and women. He wants to restore that which robs us of our dignity. He wants to give us the desires of our heart, and he wants to give us something too good to be true, but the best thing that he has ever given us was his son Jesus. And if we were to skip ahead to verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 57. We learn that Elizabeth finally gives birth to their son, and that the people, as the angel proclaimed and, and predicted, the people rejoiced with her that her, this barren woman was blessed by God with a child. And after writing on a tablet that his name was to be John, this mute father, Zechariah, opened up his mouth, and his tongue was loosened, and he spoke blessings to God. Zechariah said this as his first words in months after being a mute, which is referred to as the Benedictus. We see these words in uh, verses 68 and 69. Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And if we were to skip down to this passage in the Benedictus to verses 76 to 79, said, in you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because the tender mercy of our God 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, John's purpose was to make way for the coming Savior, to prepare those that all... To prepare those that all of what the Old Testament prophets had said about, had had predicted, was going to come true. That Jesus was coming to give light to those who sit in darkness. To call us out of our sin into a way of life and to give us fullness of joy with our Heavenly Father. And to be the atoning sacrifice. He was what the prophet Isaiah called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, an everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's who John came to prepare the way for. And that's who we are here to worship today. That's who God did the impossible for by providing an unexpected Advent encounter to Elizabeth and Zechariah to bless them with the son, John, who came to prepare the way of Christ. I believe that in the words of John chapter 3, verse 16, that said, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life life. A couple years ago, I read uh, The Purpose of Christmas, written by Rick Warren, and he says it best in one of his final chapters. It's called Unwrapping Your Christmas Gift. said, if you sacrificed all that you had to buy me a priceless and personalized Christmas gift, and I never took the time to unwrap it and open it, how would you feel? Well, you'd be disappointed and hurt and angry at my callous rejection of your generous love. And for me, the gift would be worthless if I left it unwrapped and sitting in the corner. There would be zero benefit to me. It is astounding that so many people have celebrated Christmas every year of their lives without having ever opened the greatest and the most expensive Christmas gift. Jesus Christ is God's Christmas gift to you. In Jesus, your past is forgiven, and you get a purpose for living. You get a home in heaven. Why celebrate Christmas if you're not going to open the best gift of all? The name Jesus actually means God saves. And right now, Jesus says this to you. I can replace the frustration in your heart with peace. I can replace your guilt and shame with forgiveness. I can replace your worry and anxiety with confidence. I can replace your depression with real hope. I can fill your emptiness with meaning and purpose. If you'll trust me completely, I can replace your confusion with clarity, but I'm not going to break down the door of your heart. You've got to invite me in. Are you ready to do that? Jesus is offering us the greatest thing ever, and that is life with him, but we have to let him into our heart. So as we conclude our time together in this first of our Advent encounters, um, just real quickly, we will recap what we've learned. That's number one, to not fear what God controls. We are called not to fear when God is sovereign, his plan is better than ours. Number two is to be faithful and diligent in your prayers. And number three is to trust God's sovereignty. God picked a moment of worship when people recognized their need for cleansing from sin to bring a childless couple the best news that they could have ever dreamed of and promised that he would one day be great. So I have a few questions by way of application for us to contemplate and to think about as we leave this time of worship together. Number one is, have I truly encountered the Lord? Just as Rick Warren said, have I unwrapped that gift that perhaps has been sitting in the corner unwrapped? 
Have I opened it and experienced the goodness of the Lord? Have I surrendered my life to him? I believe that we will never truly have joy and gladness the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth did, ultimately, until we encounter Jesus and fully give our life to him. Number two is, what is God calling me to trust in that I might be excusing or dismissing as impossible? If it gives you hope today, some of the strongest Christians I know admit to doubting God's plans and abilities, at least at some point in their lives. I know that I have done that. Zechariah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous, but Zechariah had clearly expressed his doubts. Thomas, Jesus' own disciple, doubted Christ's resurrection. So there have been things that I've done um, and, and doubted in my life. So what is it that God is calling you to trust in that you might be also calling impossible? And lastly, is there anything that I should remain faithful in prayers for? God is listening. He hears our prayers and he answers, answers them according to his will and in his absolute perfect timing. Just because God seems quiet does not mean that he's not listening. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, um, we thank you so much for the greatest gift that we could have ever experienced. And that is that you gave us your son, Jesus. Father, we ask that you would allow us to know him with all of our hearts, that you would open our hearts and our minds. And if there's things that we are blind to, Lord, that you would reveal that in our lives, whether it's unrepentant sin, whether it's not fully surrendering to your plans. God, we ask that you would allow this to be a day of salvation for somebody that might be here this morning who's never truly given their life over to you. If that is you this morning, I would just invite you to say a simple prayer like, Lord, I admit that there are things in my life that I have done to fail you. I admit that there is sin in my life. And Lord, I turn that over to you. Lord, I thank you for giving me your son, Jesus, to die in my place for my sins, who was the atoning sacrifice, who shed his blood for me. And Lord, I give my life over to you now. And I trust you as the Lord of my life. And Lord, for the rest of us here this morning that perhaps we are not trusting you with our plans, where we are calling a situation impossible, where we're not trusting in your sovereignty, Lord, I ask that you would forgive me for my lack of faith and that you would forgive us for calling things impossible when you say all things are possible. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning where we could worship you in spirit and in truth. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.